If you have your Bibles, turn to John 14. I'm actually really, really excited about not just this Sunday, but next. Uh, our uh, team is meeting this coming week, uh, the leadership, uh, we call it the ministry leadership team, about 10 people to do three days of strategic planning. And because of that, uh, I've written both this week's sermon and next week. So I've kind of like holding both sermons as I stand in front of you today. And uh, Jesus's discourse in John 14, I think is actually really significant. It's, um, it marks a, a moment in the life of Jesus and the life of his friends that is really, really important. And so I'm, I'm really feeling energized in my heart as I think about uh, this passage that we're about to read and the one that we're going to hold next week. They go together. Uh, they're meant to go together. And so I want you to know that um, next week is, is actually going to wrap this up in a way that I think is, is really helpful. But first, let's, let's read Jesus in, in John 14, and then we'll pray, and then we'll just jump right in. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may also be or be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves, his miracles, his teaching. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and let's try to hear Jesus. Father, we, we ask you today to open up our hearts and our minds to um, think true thoughts about the teaching of Jesus, our, our Savior. We pray that you would help us to hear him in the rich theological content that he's sharing with us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us the space today to slow down in order to, in order to receive. God, we thank you for our friends in the mountains. God, the 450 or so people in our church that are finishing up their retreat this morning. We pray that you would bless them. We thank you, God, for that time for our church, and we ask that you would be with them just as you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The first thing Jesus says here is, do not let your hearts be troubled. And it's really important for us to understand the context of this first movement in the text. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He just shared his last meal with his friends. Uh, Jesus will not eat with them until he eats on the beach, uh, cooking fish that he himself provides after the resurrection. And the disciples are really confused. Judas has already left them to betray him. 
um, either with murderous intention or at the very least to force Jesus's hand to do something political or military. Uh, Judas is gone. The disciples are confused. Peter has just told Jesus that he would never walk away from him. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, actually, before the day ends, you're going to betray me. You're going you're to say no to me three times. And so the disciples are super confused. Uh, Jesus is speaking about going away, and they are really struggling to wrap their heads around what it is that he's saying. And so within the context of confusion and within the context of additional failure that is to come, Jesus looks at his friends and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And I think it's actually really, really important for us to understand that when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, that he's basically looking at his friends and their confusion and he's saying, things are about to get worse and yet I'm going to be with you and for you on the other side of whatever it is that you're facing. And so when we encounter seasons of trouble or confusion, and I said this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the parables in, of, the, of the Good Shepherd in John 10, that you know we're confused like sheep most of the time. Most of the time we're struggling to understand or to wrap our heads around where our story is going, where life is going, what it is God is doing. And Jesus looks at his friends, and rather than shaming them, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He's speaking to them even as they struggle to keep up. And if you are anything like me, you come to these junctures in life where you realize that it's hard to keep up. It's hard to know. It's hard to know what, how you're supposed to be or what's supposed to happen. And we're confused. The disciples are very confused. And to them in their confusion, there's a part of me that thinks that Jesus was probably looking at Peter in this moment because Peter had just made this very bold statement about, I'll be with you no matter what. Like if everybody else runs away from you, I'll be with you. And then Jesus says to him, you're actually not going to be with me. You're going to falter. And then he looks at him and his friends and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And I've been thinking about this in my own life, even as I struggle to keep up, even as I am on the precipice of short-term failure. Jesus looks at me just like he looks at his friends. He looks at you and he invites us to keep moving and to believe that there is a way through what in the moment may look overwhelming. I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about Judas and Peter. I think that these two people in the inner circle of Jesus, specifically in this moment, right? So this is the last supper. They've just had it. Jesus is about to go to the cross. And, and Judas and Peter kind of run these parallel tracks, and yet one of them goes away in an unredemptive way, and one comes through in redemption. And in this moment, I think Jesus is looking at Peter, and he's inviting him to keep moving through in a redemptive way, and Judas doesn't take that path, but Peter does. And the longer that I live my life with God, the more I realize that failure is not optional. You will falter and fail. It's one of the reasons why I don't know that faith really means all that much to us until we've hit places in life where we realize we quite literally don't have what it takes, that we don't have the energy. You know, when you're 20 years old, there's a sense in which, and if you're 20, like, this is not a knock against you. There's a sense in which we believe so much in our own capability, our own uh, future, our own potential. And Peter in this moment is actually hitting a place where he's going to come to one of the great walls of his life. And Jesus is saying to him before he hits the wall, like, I've got a way for you to walk through this. 
Peter knew something on the back end of this week that he did not know on the front end. And Jesus looks at him before it all happens and says, don't let your heart be troubled. There's a process. Your life and mine is a process. And a part of that process will be moments where we quite literally don't have what it takes and we don't go down the right road. That's just the way it works. Jesus looks at us in those spaces and says, I've got a way forward for you. Speaking of process, Jesus says in the second movement, in my father's house, there are many dwellings. I love this. Uh, this is also one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. My grandmother was a Baptist and she's now with Jesus in heaven. And my grandmother believed that she was going to have a stucco mansion in heaven. I mean, she was all in because it, the King James, I think, and maybe even a translation that you're holding says, in my father's house are many mansions. And my grandmother was like, that settles it. Like streets of gold, mansions. And she imagined uh, because my grandmother uh, raised my dad and, and lived in Brookhaven when she was young. And um, her house now, which has been mostly torn down and is probably a two and a half million dollar house back then, not a two million dollar house. Poor folks. First time I ever shot a gun was in the backyard of that house in Brookhaven. You try to shoot a gun in Brookhaven now, not going to go well. My grandfather took me out into the back with a broken down car. And he said, we're going to learn how to shoot. And there I was in Brookhaven. Brookhaven was like kind of redneck space back in the day. My, my, my family grew up in that part of, of Atlanta, my, my dad's side of the family. And it was not a wealthy place. Um, people going to the bathroom outside because there wasn't all the amenities inside. And that idea for my grandmother of, I'm going to have a mansion in heaven. I'm so glad I didn't grow to understand more of the Greek language before she died to correct her. Uh, but she's totally cool now, but she is not living in a stucco mansion. Let's look at this quote by the Bishop N.T. Wright. He says this about the dwelling places of this passage are thus best understood as safe places where those who have died may lodge and rest like pilgrims in the temple while awaiting the resurrection, which is still to come. The word that the King James, I think erroneously translates mansion just means temporary dwelling place. Temporary dwelling place. Like think of a really nice hotel room where you wait for the resurrection. Jesus says, in my father's house, there are places for you to rest while you wait for the resurrection. Easter is all about resurrection. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's this dwelling place. That when we die, we are with God. My grandmother is chilling with God right now, waiting for the resurrection. But make no mistake about it. Our Bibles, Jews and Christians alike in the ancient world, understood that heaven is halfway there. Heaven is where we wait for resurrection. We are Easter people, those of us who belong to Jesus. That means we're going to be resurrected in our bodies. Our Bibles end with the new Jerusalem, heaven coming down to earth and us living a fully embodied resurrected existence on a completely renewed earth. That means Eden comes back around. The story of the Bible starts in a good garden. We have lived all of our existence east of Eden in a broken world. God is going to one day heal the world and you're not gonna sit on clouds with fat little babies and diapers listening to harp music throughout all eternity. Y'all, that doesn't sound fun to me. I remember as a kid thinking, so wait, you're telling me that I've got a never ending church service to look forward to. 
kids, that ain't what it's going to be like. We're going to work, but it's not going to be hard work. We're going to work and it's going to it's going to work for us. We're going to have jobs to do and friendships to have and hobbies to pursue. And we're going to be completely unhindered. We're going to live a fully resurrected life. When Jesus says in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. What he's saying is I've got a place for you to rest as we wait for the resurrection. So in a very real sense, resurrection is life after life, after death, life after life after death. Heaven is life after death, but that's not the end of the story. And what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to know that you're a person destined for resurrection, but while we wait, I've got a place for you. He says to his friends, I'm going to prepare a place to you. And the third thing he says is you're going to know the way. Knowing the way is following Jesus where he leads. And Jesus is basically saying to his friends, you know the way. And they're like, we don't know the way. Two of them actually have the boldness to say, what are you talking about right here? Like, they're confused. They do not understand. Philip and Thomas are basically just speaking for the rest of them. And they're just like, Jesus, we don't even know what you're talking about. He's like, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And what does Jesus say? The fourth movement, I am the way and the truth and the life. Just like with the sheep, what Jesus is saying is, if you follow me, you'll never get lost. Is he saying we won't be confused? Is he saying we won't be afraid? Is he saying we won't worry? The disciples are worried about failing a test. They're worried about not knowing the right answer or getting lost. And what Jesus says when he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, is he's basically saying, if you will learn how to remain connected to me, you're not going to get lost. Let's look at this quote from Thomas Akempis, a church father. I love this quote. He says, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Jesus says, I am the way you must follow, the truth which you must believe, and the life for which we must hope. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. If you remain in my way, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free and you will lay hold of eternal life. The reason why I love this quote, helping us understand what Jesus is saying is that essentially Thomas Akempis is saying that life as it connects to Jesus is about our going, our knowing, and our living. And I find myself asking myself three questions going, where am I headed? Where are you headed right now? Jesus has something to say about the trajectory or the direction of your life. Like a trajectory doesn't start at your death as you prepare to go to heaven. It starts right now. You are headed somewhere. Jesus has something to say. He wants to shape where your life is headed. He also wants to shape what we believe. Y'all, what we believe actually really matters. Like having, don't check your brain at the door as a Christian. We need to understand that not all religions are the same. They actually aren't all the same. Some stories are more true than other stories. It's my conviction that the story told by God in Christian faith is the truest story. Now, there are elements of truth and resonance in other stories, but this one is true. It's the truest. What you believe really matters. Jesus has something to say. And this is where we have a hard time because we don't love to have someone else shape us. And yet what Jesus is saying here is I want to shape where your life is headed. I also want to shape what you believe. 
And the third thing Jesus wants to do is he wants to actually meet us in terms of who we're becoming, not just where we're going or what we believe, but the kind of person you're becoming, Jesus wants to have something to say to that as well. And this gets the way, the truth, and the life, this gets to a fundamental struggle that we have. We struggle not only to believe Jesus, but we struggle to follow him. We don't want him to tell us what to do or where to go. And it's my conviction, let's go back to the list, that struggle to believe. Um, if we are listening to Peter in this story, Peter has just made a bold statement about what he's going to do. And Jesus basically says, you're not going to follow through, but I've made a way for you. It's my conviction that even though the disciples are really struggling to track with Jesus, this conversation was pivotal for Peter's life. This is why Peter was able to say yes to Jesus on the back end of failure. Peter's about to fail. Jesus has said to him, I've made a way for you. Before you fail, I've made a way. So how does Jesus reconnect with Peter after the resurrection? Do y'all remember that story? John, Peter, they're fishing. They've gone back to their jobs. They don't know what to do. They're out there fishing. It's not going very well. And then they look out on the land and there's a guy um, who says, throw your nets out, like on the other side, like try another thing. And they do. And then they realize that the person on the shore is Jesus. And what happens? Peter immediately dives in the water and starts swimming. And Peter, I love him because he's like the patron saint of like the guy who acts first and then thinks second. Um, what we know in that story is that John doesn't jump out of the boat and he just turns the boat around and he beats Peter to the shore, which is amazing. But Peter was so pumped. And I just, he's like the guy for people who get pumped and then realize like, dang, like John's already there. And by the time Peter and John get there, Jesus is already cooking fish, not their fish. He's already got fish. He's welcoming them to a table. And he's saying, this isn't about you. This is about me providing for you. I believe the reason why Jesus invited Peter and Peter was able to jump in the boat is that Jesus basically said to him, before all the failure, I'll be here on the back end of that short-term failure. And some of us in this room need to hear that. That when you hit the end of yourself and do not have what it takes, Jesus looks at you before that happens and says, I'll be here on the backside of that. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you because I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I believe that one of the fundamental invitations for us is to follow God. The disciples had a hard time following. They had a hard time believing him. So you're in good company. He's inviting you and me to learn how to follow even when we're confused. To learn how to let him lead. To look to him for where we're headed, who we're becoming, and what we believe. And at the end, Jesus basically says, I invite you to participate with me. I love these words. The words that Jesus uses at the end here are, we're going to do the works, even greater works than Jesus did. And a lot of us think like, what does that even mean? On one fundamental level, what it means is that the disciples and now you and me are standing now in a completed story that was yet to be completed when Jesus made these statements. We now stand in light of the resurrection. We know where the story is headed, that, that life conquers death, that Jesus wins. Therefore, you get to be an Easter person. You get to be a person who affirms life, who gets to live into life. 
there are kids in this room, so we're not going to get into the details, but the stuff that happened in our city this last week, the, 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 the fear and the darkness and the tragedy in our city, you know, Jesus wants us to have something to say to that kind of darkness and fear and tragedy because we're people of life. He wants us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, as Mother Teresa said, we get to be. But in order for us to be that, we've got to believe that God is still working today, that he wants to speak to the world and the hurts of the world and the confusion of the world and the anger of the world, that we need to believe that he wants to heal, that he wants to work. I want to read to you something from the prophet Habakkuk. He says, O Lord, I have heard of your renown, and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. That was a prophet saying, I've heard the old stories. Revive your work and your renown in this day and age. I believe the Lord wants you and me to be the kinds of people who pray that God would use us and revive his renown. And I'm gonna tell you, the renown of Jesus, the work of Jesus is not going to be solely enhanced through PR campaigns. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a, a PR campaign Maybe, I, I'm not a PR person. Um, but this is about people like you and me seeing that Jesus still works and wants to work. And that requires that we would be the kinds of people who would take risks for God in relationship and in the world around us, that we would step out and use our gifts for him. So here's the question I wanna leave you with. Where is Jesus inviting you to participate with him in his work right now? Where is he asking you to be his hands and feet? We're going to spend just a few moments in some quiet reflection asking that question. And I believe that for many of us, today is a day for you to begin to realize that God doesn't want to just use somebody else. He wants to use you where you work, in your relationships. He wants to use you out in the real world. But that requires your participation. So where is Jesus wanting you to participate with him? We're going to spend just a few moments in silence uh, just considering this question, believing it maybe, and then considering it. And then we'll come to communion. We'll get ready for this table. But first, let's just be still for a few moments and hold this question in our heart.